you know, sometimes mystics are improperly pigeonholed as being pie in the sky, impractical uh, people. But for me, mysticism is actually about loving what is. It's about embracing what is, the fullness of reality, which at a bare minimum has to include my idea of God. Like if God isn't at, at bare minimum reality, then, then God is not worthy of the name. And it's an art of union as opposed to a science of union, because a science of union would imply that we're not already one with this reality, that we're not already a part of this reality. And frankly, I think that is the curse of the civilizational mind to see ourselves as separate. There's a generation on the verge of seeing a great move of the Lord. A remnant raised up for this reason. But which of us are gonna step up and seize it? Many a cop, a few ago. May I always say yes? Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm still Seth. You're still you. I'm excited. December is about done. Uh, 2018 is about done. I've had so much growth and met so many new people and talked to so many different people this year. It's been, no, it's been amazing. So thank you to every single one of you that support the show in any way, whether you've rated and reviewed on iTunes. And if you haven't done that, shame on you. Go do that. You know you've wanted to for a while. It's like 26 characters. Just make it happen. Specifically, though, to each and every single one of you that support the show financially on Patreon, it is a privilege and a blessing to engage with you. It is a privilege and a blessing to partner with you in this way. I am continually humbled by your generosity, and I am so encouraged by it. I can't wait to see what 2019 brings. If you have not yet done that, please just visit the website at canisaythisatchurch.com. There's a support the show button in the top right or patreon.com slash can I say this at church and and do that consider in any way shape or form whatever you're comfortable with um, support the show I'd love to show I'd love to throw you some things that other people don't hear uh, every once in a while I get to see what I look like which is that's dangerous but it is what it is this week's episode was both one of the hardest ones that I've ever done and it's also some of the most fun I've had in a while in a conversation I mean Mike Morell uh, was the guest this week as 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 you've seen if you downloaded the episode and we talked about the future of the church. We talked about creation. We talked about mysticism. We talked about mythicism, uh, the Enneagram, uh, a little bit of Donald Trump, but don't let that scare you. But we, we talked about so many things. And overarchingly, it's about intention with the way that we treat each other relationally and what that relationship then means for how I interact with God. And then that's then going to inform how I treat you and others around you and me intentionally. And it's cyclical and the work is hard and it's worth it. Before we dive in, one of my favorite quotes is from Carl Rahner, who basically said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or it won't exist at all. I find there's so much truth in that. And I also find it disconcerting and uncomforting. And I think that's the point. And so here it is. Roll the tape on the conversation with Mike Morell.
Mike Morell, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Um, I know we've tried to do this off and on for months, and because you're busy and because I'm busy, it's been unable to happen until now, and so I'm thankful for your time today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Seth. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. We are some busy humans, but here we are. Oh, I think all humans are busy. That's probably our problem. We should learn to let go of one thing and not replace it with something else. Um, but that's not why <laughs> That's not why I brought you on. For those listening, I'm sure they've seen your name either on a book with Richard Rohr or your name gets thrown around and quoted a lot. I've seen in at least the groups that I'm in um, on Facebook and or Twitter. But can mm. you tell those unfamiliar with you kind of a little bit about yourself, kind of your upbringing, and, and then what impacted your life to get you where you're at now in the way that you do you? Sure. Yeah. So I am a writer, blogger, and I love working with authors and publishers and events to create really beautiful experiences for folks and writing that moves the needle forward in terms of living a wholehearted, open-handed life with God and each other. It's uh, because I suck at having a day job. I've kind of made that up for most of my adult life, and uh, it's seeming to work so far. Uh, my upbringing, I grew up in the Bible Belt in Georgia, mm. uh, suburban metro Atlanta area, Georgia, and it was kind of a denominational mutt. I had uh, came to faith in a Southern Baptist context. And then, well, I had a born-again experience when I was four years old, you know, said that sinner's prayer and repented mm. for my life of debauchery up to that point. And, uh, what does that, but, not to cut you off, what does that look like from zero to four? What does debauchery look like for a three-year-old and 11-month yes. person? Yeah, I, I was being somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Well, I'm, I'm, sure I felt, I'm sure I felt guilty about something. <laughs> But no, it, it was actually, uh, it was a conscious uh, choice. I, I, I still remember it. And it, it seemed to have an impact on me. You know, my parents uh, were sort of cultural Christians, Catholic and Southern Baptist, respectively. And they were from further up north. My dad was from Appalachian, West Virginia, my mom from Connecticut. And so coming to the south, moving to Georgia, they had this inevitable uh, confrontation with, with faith, both through television at the time, Pat Robertson, 700 Club, as well as through friends, I think. And so, you know, started bringing me to church and they had their own born again experiences. You know, they were seekers in the early 80s. And by the late 80s, we, we turned up the dial a little bit, got involved with Pentecostal folks. I had a, a baptism in the Holy Spirit experience which uh, if your listeners don't know what that means, there are some branches of Christianity that uh, believe that not only do you enter into a sort of um, salvific covenant through belief and or baptism in water, but there's this sort of extra dose of uh, divinity that you can get by just being more receptive, more open to the power of God to come inside of you and work on you. And for my parents, that looked like having a 30-plus year smoking addiction and mm. wanting deliverance from that. And they had this baptism in the Holy Spirit experience at our kitchen table with a couple of friends who were praying with them. And they quit smoking cold turkey uh, that mm. day and never smoked again. It was, it was really powerful for them. And I saw that, and I was moved by that and had my own experience with uh, speaking in tongues, sort of ecstatic speech, 
uh, which became a reliable feature within a few years. You know, some people in the Pentecostal world, you get it kind of one and done with your your baptism experience and the spirit, but others uh, can do it on the regular. And that mm-hmm. was a value in the churches that we were in. And yeah, I don't know, that, that was a, you know, really experiential time for me and, and my faith also very volatile in certain ways. And there were different church scandals and things of that nature. And my parents left that movement after about, oh, I don't know, five, six years. And then I was in a Presbyterian church, which is like the exact opposite, (laughs) a conservative Presbyterian PCA environment, which I appreciated at the time for encouraging more of a life of the mind uh, than the Pentecostal church did. You know, it was okay to read books. It was also okay to drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite okay as a teenager, but, uh, you know, I still did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's legal uh, in your house with your parents, though, so you're good. Yeah, it's legal in in the house with my parents, but maybe not legal in the pastor's house with with my best friend's uh, parents. I don't know. (laughs) Well, there there were parents, and it's still a house, so we'll allow it. We'll we'll go with that. It's past the statute of limitations anyway, I'm sure. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so, you know, I kind of grew up in this composted environment, the Bible Belt, where everyone took faith really seriously. You know, Baptists were really big on evangelism, and Pentecostals were really big on living in the power of the Spirit. Presbyterians were really big on theology and their own particular ideas of, you know, predestination, etc. And it had an interesting impact on me. Uh, On the one hand, I really appreciated the various distinctives, you know, much like if you were shopping for wine or cars, you could be like, oh, this is an interesting feature. On the other hand, the sort of odious sectarianism really got to me, this feeling that these folks had the corner market and everyone else was, if not, you know, condemned to hell, certainly highly mistaken and Mm -hmm. will have to, you know, face a serious reckoning with the Almighty uh, sooner or later. And I don't know, that that had a a practical effect of uh, relativizing me to a certain extent at a at a relatively young age by the time, you know, I was in high senior in high school. Whereas all these movements taught absolute truth, the idea of absolute truth, and that they held the corner market on it, I saw that there were multiple competing truth claims, and rather than choosing between one of them, I, I sort of saw them all as being partially correct and, and partially incorrect. And so entering into college, I had, uh, which was, you know, the advent of the internet, at least in popular use, like late 90s, mm-hmm. uh, I, had, I was impacted by two movements in, in my faith formation. One was uh, the house church movement, this sort of decentralized, and in my case, egalitarian, open participatory uh, network of community-based, neighborhood-based house churches that changed how I you know, saw ecclesiology in a lot of ways, and also introduced me to the mystics, because this was a very eclectic stream that really enjoyed uh, Brother Lawrence, uh, Jean Guillon, Francois Fenelon, and Michael Molinas in particular. And also, the with the coalescence of the internet, the very early uh, birth pangs of what became known as the emerging church uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. 
And, and if I could maybe add a third stream in there, it was like the new monasticism, these other folks who were living in community and creating vows, and they had more of an outward focus than our inwardly focused house church movement, more of a focus on being a witness and um, being a witness for justice and equality in neighborhoods that were, quote, at the margins of empire, as they put it. And also 9-11 happened, you know, a few year, a few short years later. And with 9-11 happening, that really led to me having a reckoning in my politics, yeah. uh, which before that were by default conservative, Republican. And really, by the time I was in high school, Republicans weren't conservative enough for me. So I hung out with John Birch Society types and libertarians. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found them to be more intellectually satisfying than the sort of wishy-washy Republicans. Uh, <laughs> and so, but 9-11 happens and... You know, there's all this saber rattling about going to war with Iraq. And I knew from what I read, Iraq didn't really have anything to do with 9-11. And so seeing the sort of reflexive, patriotic saber rattling was disturbing to me. And that was when I discovered um, Anabaptists, Christian anarchists mm -hmm. with uh, like JesusRadicals.com, which is still around. And uh, there was this group of vineyard pastors that created this uh, statement called Kingdom Now, 95 Theses Against the Nationalist Idolatry of the United States. Hmm. And it's a sort of broadside. I've that, not read that. How well does it hold up, if you remember any of the theses? Is it still... Because some things were written really to that yeah, time. Yeah. It's been a while since I've looked at it. The website was kingdomnow.org, which is not around anymore. But if you went on archive.org, mm -hmm. I'm sure you can pull it up. Uh, Christian Smith, who runs the Englewood Review of Books now, he was the one, one of the main writers of that. I'm imagining it probably uh, feels a lot like clueless white pacifism these days, <laughs> if I were to read elements of it. And at the same time, I just it, it was perfect for where I was at because it had chapter and verse references for every one of the theses about, hey, we are uh, having we are to have allegiance to a king who knows no you know national boundary. We are a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why, uh, you know, if we're if we are to turn the other cheek and love our enemies, why are we going to war? And, uh, yeah, you know, I discovered probably Stanley Hauerwas at that mm -hmm. time, John Howard Yoder, you know, all the, all the Anabaptist crew. So that, so it was a threefold chord of, I'd say house church, emergent church, and then new monasticism slash Anabaptism all explored within the relative freedom of, uh, college. And that really began to evolve my faith. So that's a lot of buckets. So you've gone from ultra conservative to leaning more conservative politically to then blowing everything up, leaning into mysticism and a few other things. So yeah. what do you call yourself today? Like if I said, all right, Mike, what kind of Christian are you? Is Christian the right term? Yeah. What, what do you, 30 second elevator pitch, what are yeah. you religiously? Sure. Christian's totally the right term. I don't like to get too precious about terminology. You know, yeah, labels suck and we use them as a certain necessary shorthand. Mm -hmm. So if I had 30 seconds in an elevator, I would probably say that I'm a friend of God and an aspiring follower of Jesus. If people ask me what kind of Christian I am, I would say I'm a composted Christian that there are all these elements in my life of Christianity. And rather than the Ref Protestant Reformation idea of scorched earth start from scratch, 
I see all these elements, even the ones that are decaying, as nourishing the soil of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, that even if they're rotting, they actually have something valuable to offer me, and it would be disingenuous of me to disown any part of my past. Last question about your past, and I like to move into hopefully what the future looks like for, well, I think honestly for the faith, if there's still going to be one uh, for mm. my kids' kids, but um, yeah. we'll we'll get there. So you have kids like mine, and so I find often with, and, and some of my uh, changes in my viewpoints on religion and politics and faith and uh, posture towards those that have less privilege than I do, and even recognizing that that's a thing, as opposed to feeling like I'm losing rights because other people are gaining them, when I didn't really <laughs> lose anything, they just yep. got some, Funny, which is works. which is progress. Um, so how do you explain God to your kids? And I say this not knowing exactly how old your kids are, um, and mm-hmm. so if they're one, this is a really easy answer. You probably don't. Um, but how do you how do you navigate questions about God? with your background and lens with your children? Yeah, 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 it's a great question. So, you know, I have two girls, uh, one is four and one is 11. Mm. And uh, our four-year-old has special needs. She has Down syndrome. So that definitely, you know, impacts every aspect of our parenting and and relating to her. Uh, With our oldest, she has always been super inquisitive and I don't know that I've ever sat down and had an ontological chat about God, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, but she has been raised in in faith communities. We we relocated from the Atlanta area to Raleigh, North Carolina, in the mid two thousands with about a dozen of our friends that went to college together to start this house church community. Uh, she was born in that context, though I doubt she remembers it because within a couple of years, you know, we sadly imploded due to a variety of internal and external uh, drama. Mm-hmm. But we we found another faith community that was fairly similar in certain ways in Raleigh called Trinity's Place. It was this church experiment run by a couple of ministers from a, a tiny progressive denomination called the Alliance of Baptists. The Alliance of Baptists are are contemplative. They have a little bit of a Celtic flair. They're still undeniably Baptist and even Anabaptist. And we met in a circle. We had we celebrated communion every week. We had different folks share. And so she grew up with that in her earlier years. That was also an experiment that uh, passed away more with a whimper than a bang. It wasn't super dramatic, but the main folks who were catalyzing it moved out of the area for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, but we, we've continued to find faith communities that were um, matching with our values and our momentum. And we can go into more of that later when we talk about possible futures and preferable mm-hmm. futures of uh, the church and Christianity. Mm-hmm. But um, so I'd say, you know, she always had that sort of social public faith formation element. And then we, we try to practice uh, centering prayer together. There's a, there's a little book, actually, that outlines uh, centering prayer, which, if your listeners don't know, is a, a streamlined form of the ancient uh, contemplative tradition within Christianity. It's a 20-minute a practice, at least for adults. It's a 20-minute practice where you, you sit with a simple intention to be with yourself just as you are and to be with God just as God is. And... You, you hold a sacred word that symbolizes your intention to simply be there. And whenever you catch your mind going off and drifting off to something, you use that word not as a mantra, but as a kind of release, a kind of uh, internal muscle of, of letting go 
and uh, and just relaxing back into that awareness of God. And yeah. so, you know, it's a practice that I've I've uh, you know aspired to and have failed at and have picked up again for about twenty years now. <laughs> and uh, and it's one that I I taught uh, our our oldest daughter. The, the kids' version is like uh, seven minutes. So you know, she had that perspective that that practice. And being a reader, being a voracious reader, and, and being my daughter, she loves comic books. So I've gotten her various uh, comic book adaptations of the Bible. And I didn't know those often, were a thing. Oh gosh, there are so many different ones, and there and and none of them are like progressive per se. They're all from various lenses of various you know creators, and mm-hmm. I I just let her read them all, and uh, and and then we talk about them. And she'll notice that, like, oh, you know, in this comic Bible, the story goes this way. In this comic Bible, the story goes that way. And I'll be like, yeah, why, why do you suppose that is? And so we get to have conversations that, not unlike the actual Bible, uh, different authors have different experiences and perspectives that they, they weave into the text. And so, you know, she's very literate uh, with the Bible and, you know, now has her own grown-up Bible. Uh, I don't know how much of it she's cracked but uh, she she does have it, and you know when I worked on the book with with Richard, the Divine Dance, of course she had questions about what a Trinity was, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we we did that was probably the most ontological conversation about God that we we've had, and I said well you know we we believe in a a God who is the generator and sustainer of life, and and we share that belief with with Jewish people and with Muslim people. And at the same time, we Christians have this interesting experience that's kind of unique, where we experience this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as somehow also being divine. But we only believe in one God, and so how can how can Jesus mm-hmm. be divine uh, also? And and what is this? And who is this Holy Spirit who you know Jesus says he sends as this Comforter, as this Sustainer, as this Helper? And I said, and, and Christians. Um, you know, began to think about all of that for a few hundred years and decide that that we still wanted to be a part of the One God Club. And at the same time, we saw divinity present in Jesus, and we took seriously Jesus' promise of, of God dwelling inside of us, and, and we call that the Trinity. And it's, it's God that is one, but the oneness is in relationship, that there's this relationship that we call Father, Son, and Spirit. And we also can experience oneness and relationship with each other as we move forward in in the shalom and the goodness of of what God's doing on earth. So I only wrote two questions on the Trinity, because I'd be a fool to not ask you about the Trinity, considering you worked on that text with, with, with Richard. If I was to actually practice what I say that Christians believe in a Trinity, what would be different about the way that we do church and relationships now? Because I hear you say it's relational. Yes. But I know we never really talk about the Holy Spirit except for that one week at Pentecost that we do that one that, that yep. one time and all of the songs say fire and spirit in them and then we won't do them again for an entire year. And so if I was to actually live and breathe what Trinity should look like, how should that affect the way that I'm relationally posturing myself to anything? Well, first I've got to say you obviously didn't grow up Pentecostal because nope. other, then you would have had Holy <laughs> Spirit 24-7 and maybe there's this dude named Jesus that has something to do with mm. bringing the Spirit. No, I, <laughs> I grew was... up very Southern Baptist and then after one of those Baptist conferences where everybody wanted to argue for the 2800th time, I, we then I then went to an independent regular Baptist 
Uh, mm. Now I'm with Cooperative Baptist. Um, I can't get out of the Baptist camp, but I really love the church <laughs> that I'm at now, so I'm not mad yeah. about it. Did you, did you find that the regular Baptists had better fiber intake? Well, it's more consistent fiber. I don't know that it's better, but it's definitely, okay. it, it's yeah. something in the way that we did communion. It's just better consistency. Definitely Good. not gluten-free, but better overall yeah. bread. Good. Yeah. yeah. Good. That's helpful. <laughs> Well, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, s- some folks have talked about how different denominations or historical periods generally emphasize one person of the Trinity over another. And uh, I think that's interesting to look at, that we gravitate maybe towards certain depiction or, or lens of God uh, more than others. But the idea of what theologians would technically call the social Trinity this sort of perichoresis or circle dance of the you know interrelationship and the cooperation of the members of the Trinity in um, both within themselves and generating reality, that's something that Christians hardly ever think about, barely in, in theology and almost never in the pulpit. And that's why I think my friend Paul Young's novel, The Shack, did mm-hmm. so well. Uh, so, I mean, that, that was when I really first started thinking about the Trinity. I was a part of the launch team for The Shack back when it was a, a small, independently published venture, I guess, over a decade ago now. And, you know, it's a very narrative depiction of this papa who loves his, uh, you know, son, his her, slash her son so much. And, and Sarayu, this sort of uh, flitting about energetic benevolent spirit and that how much they all adore each other and that within that relationship all of these paradoxes are eased including the paradoxes of senseless death and pain and i think that that novel really hit a chord with uh, you know christians and non-christians alike because suddenly it was an alternative uh, image of god that was distinct from this sort of um you know, Zeus, a distant, stern Zeus of the the Calvinists and the Puritans, mm-hmm. or this sort of Santa Claus slot machine of uh, popular TV preachers and prosperity preachers, and of course, you know, different than the super remote deist uh, deity of you know maybe Unitarianism or Transcendentalism. So you have like all these American gods not uh, to confuse it with the excellent Neil Gaiman uh, novel and show, <laughs> but uh, that that aren't working for a lot of people these days. And The Shack and I think The Divine Dance in our own small way were showing that, hey, this, this dusty concept of the social trinity can actually be quite juicy. It can actually transform everything. And what it transforms for me is to know that as I sit here with you, you're not disconnected from me, that our stories are intimately tied to each other, and that you bear the Imago Dei, the image of God, that the image of God, in fact, can't fully be properly bared by individuals, but it takes a community of people to truly generate the image of God. And then to me, that changes everything. So if, uh, well, I have two questions on that. The first one is when you say Zeusian God, all I can picture in my head is the Walt Disney Zeus Hercules movie of him just throwing bolts at people or, um, yep. spoiler alert, Im- improperly pregnating humanity to, to make <laughs> Hercules um, with, with no consent. Um, but it, specifically about the Imago Dei, if I, are you saying that I can't as an individual bear the full image of God outside of relationship? Is that what you're saying? Or 
that my re- my image bearing of God is made better through relationships. I mean, if I had to choose between those options, I would probably veer toward the latter. You know, as a as a panentheist, I think there is something of divinity in in every rock and you know shard of glass and everything that exists. But I, I do think that that unique way that we bear the Imago Dei uh, is social. I mean, if you even think of uh, Genesis, where the idea makes its debut, it's you know male and female. God created them in the image of God created them. It was, it's a plurality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a solo sport. And so, and I think that that's actually how a lot of theologians come to the Trinity through a sort of internal logic, which is that if we attest as uh, Christians that God is love, well, for God to be love, there needs to, at the very minimum, be a lover and a beloved. And for God to be love in a way that isn't simply um, even self-reinforcing in the way that narcissistic coupling can often happen, Mm -hmm. then God being a a three uh, comes in really handy metaphysically. So I would say that definitely it really ups the game of how are we unique image bearers uh, in a way that, that could be different. And at the same time, I want to maintain creaturely humility because I think that sometimes various animal kingdoms can uh, can model interdependence uh, a lot better than we can. Getting back to that metaphor of, of, of Zeus, um, so one of the things I wanted to talk with you about was mysticism. But before I do, oftentimes when I say mysticism, what people hear me wanting to talk about is myth. Mi- oh, God. Mythicism. Myth, that's the one. Um, I can't say it. Um, do that. So, I have some really intelligent friends that could, you know, uh, come up with that that mishearing of a word. I guess. But um, so, what is the big distinction between a Zeusian type god, which is a myth, you know, and and oftentimes when I start talking about any mysticism, which is what I find myself gravitating toward often, um, <laughs> while I pray or while I read or while I think or while I look out at the mountains that I live next to is something much more grander than text on a page um, for me. But I've never been able to distinctly be able to say, well, here's where you can draw the line between mythicism and mysticism. Wow. I've never even heard people wanting to conflate those two. So let me... Let me sit with this for a second. What what do people mean when they're thinking about mythicism? I think they mean that I'm, uh, well, for one, they usually mean I'm taking a low view of Scripture and elevating something that isn't quote-unquote in the Bible um, to a status of authority, whether or not it was written by someone, and that then I'm allowing outside influences that are myth to influence the way that I see God, I think is what they usually are trying to tell me. Wow, so it's like a, a willful mishearing of a phrase in a way that, that hurls invectives at your, <laughs> at your yeah. paradigm. Yeah, but I get it often enough, usually on Facebook, and so I'm either typing something wrong or I do have smart friends, and it's probably a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> it's probably more my fault than anything. But mm. it, it was a question I wanted to ask you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, first of all, that kind of goes into this popular misconception that myth means lie. And, and I get that that's how we often use it in our current English language. Like, oh, that's not true. That's just a myth. But mm-hmm. I think that like myth in the uh, Joseph Campbell sense of the term are these uh, the stories that actually tell really deep truths, whether they've really factually happened or not. And so, you know, clearly the stories of Zeus told truths about um, 
you know, Greek Greek and Roman society, these various pantheons that uh, that were there were truths about how their culture, their values, how they operated. And in that sense of the term, I actually don't mind saying that a lot of even scripture, Christian scripture is myth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, clearly like letters between people like Paul writing to folks and saying, by the way, don't forget to pick up my coat in such and such a town. It's not quite intended to be mythic literature, but there are other stories, especially I'd say in the first you know, dozen or so chapters of Genesis and, and arguably Job uh, that are more parabolic uh, that are intended by their original hearers to, uh, to be these epic stories that tell deep truths about who we are and who we came to be. I've long since made peace with that understanding that I don't have to have a completely 100% sorted out, oh, this really happened, quote unquote, and this is a myth, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. Also, because, you know, people can enact things in real life that also have mythic significance. So there's that, too. Right, right. (laughs) It's like sometimes, uh, you know, some of my favorite contemporary New Testament scholars will be like, well, you know, the meaning of this story of Jesus' miracle is, is X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, man, right on. I totally agree with that meaning. And as a Pentecostal, I saw weird stuff happen. I can't all I can't discount all of. So <laughs> it's possible for me that something weird really does happen, and that it has this sort of mythic significance. Yeah. So, so those are my thoughts about about myth. Now, mysticism. Uh, you know, my favorite uh, definition of mysticism comes from Evelyn Underhill. She was an early 20th century Anglican uh, spiritual writer, and she talked about how mysticism was the art of union with reality. And I I really like that because it it places the emphasis in two places that I really like, which is uh, art and reality. That, you know, sometimes mystics are improperly pigeonholed as being pie in the sky impractical uh, people. But for me, mysticism is actually about loving what is. It's about embracing what is, the fullness of reality, which at a bare minimum has to include my idea of God. Like if God isn't at, at bare minimum reality, then then God is not worthy of the name. Mm. And it's an art of union as opposed to a science of union, because a science of union would imply that we're not already one with this reality, that we're not already a part of this reality. And frankly, I think that is the curse of the civilizational mind to see ourselves as separate. Um, actually, I'm, I'm working on co-launching a nonprofit with a good friend of mine right now called Rewilder. And part the core of it is our anthropological reading of scripture, where we see the advent of agriculture and the advent of this separation mindset as being one and the same. And it opens in the Fertile Crescent where our monotheistic traditions emerge. It opens with this story of transitioning from a tree of life, of wholeness, of unity, to a tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is duality and discrimination. Mm -hmm. It opens with a garden, but then we're cast out of it. I really think that's what we experience as a species. We developed what um, evolutionary psychologists call self-reflexive consciousness, where suddenly I'm a very distinctive me, you're a very distinctive you, and it gives the gift of a certain rich inner subjectivity and discrimination, but the curse is I no longer feel 
like we are brothers. I no longer feel one with my my band of people. I no longer feel one with my environment or myself as an embodied creature who has a, a bedrock place within this creaturely universe. I no longer feel intimately connected to spirit or divinity as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And when I don't feel connected, when I'm cast out from that garden of interconnection, I'm capable of all kinds of atrocities, not because I'm evil, but because I'm lonely. I've seen broken lives healed by broken heads, in spite of all the obstacles. I've seen humble feet choose a taker stand. Who's to say I'm not a miracle? Who's to say that I'm not wonderfully made? I want more of that. I don't even know where to read more of that, but I want more of that. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is the the myth of of, of Genesis is is anthropologically related back to us being able to be self sustaining knowledge, mm-hmm. and that made us inherently tribal, and not only tribal from each other, but tribal from the divine. Oh, interesting that you're using the word tribe in that way. And I get that that's actually how a lot of people use it these days, that tribal inherently means like cliquish, divisive, etc. I would actually love us to see a return of tribal as we were tribal for hundreds of thousands of years of our existence. Uh, as I continue to dive into anthropological literature, what I'm seeing is that when we were immediate return foragers, what's more popularly known as being hunter-gatherers, we basically lived in functional egalitarianism, did not have organized warfare. Because our population was at a relatively low level for a few hundred thousand years, whenever uh, two tribes would start to uh, kind of bump up against each other and food started to get a little scarce, it was way less resource wise to simply move in opposite directions Mm -hmm. than to fight over property because the earth bore so much abundance uh, during this time. There was a certain, you know, fertility by and large uh, to the earth. So again, it wasn't that these folks were like saints and were terrible. It's about these sort of environmental triggers that um, signal certain things internally. So I think we actually became less tribal and more civilizational. When we began to till land, suddenly we had the question of whose land is it? That was a question that never occurred to humans before the advent of agriculture about yeah. six to 8,000 years ago. And so suddenly I had to know if this land was mine and I needed to know who I was passing it along to. So my children had to become my property now as opposed to being raised in a village. My women had to become my property now. And you see this echoed in the language of even the Ten Commandments. I, I see it as a sort of uh, loving divine condescension trying to uh, limit the damages of agriculture. Say, you know, because women are listed in a list of property. It's like, mm-hmm. don't covet your neighbor's oxen or their tools or their wife. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow, what is this? And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I feel like we have far too many fundamentalists today that want to preserve that you know, ethos as women as property. And you might have more, you know, skeptic and atheist types saying, see, this proves that religion codifies women as property. And I think there's a third alternative, which is that culture in general uh, had this massive shift. What um, anthropologist Jared Diamond calls one of the worst ecological and social disasters of, of the human species. And that religion was attempting to catch up with that. 
religion suddenly recognized that there was a breach, that there was this fourfold alienation from God, self, other, and world. And all healthy religion, all healthy spirituality is attempting to bridge that gap. It's attempting to provide us with the practices, the beliefs, and the community forms that can reunite what has been lost. And the, the struggle is that we can't solve a problem at the level it's created it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this era of the last six to 8,000 years brought with it some alienation mindsets. And so even with the best of intentions, religions and spiritualities often increase shame, increase in-grouping and infighting, increase that unhealthy form of tribalism that you're naming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a real act of discernment to figure out what are the you know the stories, the community forms, the practices that can help? And one of the reasons I'm still a Christian is because I believe that Jesus of Nazareth embodied a lot of the ethos of immediate return foragers in his teachings of taking no thought for tomorrow, of considering the lilies, of breaking bread as a, as a sign of this sort of koinonia, this fellowship of the kingdom of God. I think he was bringing this sort of hunter-gatherer life way in the midst of his empire and agrarian context of his time, and people didn't understand it. And if we're honest, we don't even fully understand it today. But I think that ecology is necessitating us understanding it, is necessitating us getting it, because we've had an 8,000-year-long adolescence. We're breaking our stuff like any adolescent does, but our stuff happens to be the planet, and the planet's not (laughs) going to hold out for much longer unless we grow up. What I'm hearing you say is there's two alternatives. There's either a Thanos-type snap, and we go back to where we were prior religion, or maybe we actually follow Jesus and practice (laughs) what the Christians should— practice what Christianity preaches as opposed to what Christians preach. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's again, with the compost metaphor, it's not like anyone has ever gotten it 100% right or 100% wrong. I think we can look at the history of, of Christianity and find the contemplatives, find the mystics that we're seeking to draw closer to God. We can also find the folks who sought to honor the earth in more holistic ways. Uh, Francis of Assisi and, and Claire being very picturesque examples mm-hmm. of this uh, harmony, greater harmony with nature. And so I, I think that our own eschatology holds a key in the idea and the image of the new Jerusalem descending to heaven, from heaven to earth. Like on the one hand, it's a city. And it's interesting because scripture has almost nothing positive to say about cities. You know, from the earliest uh, mentions in Babel, they're often places of violence and confusion. But yet the, the closing image in our narrative is not returning to a garden. It is a city. But if we look closer, it's actually a garden city. Mm-hmm. Because it contains the elements of Eden, it yeah. contains the river flows out of it. Of life. Yeah. yeah, the trees of life lining the lining the sides, rivers of life, gold, silver, precious stones. It's like a laundry list of Genesis one and two making its way into Revelation twenty one and twenty two. And how I'm choosing to interpret that is that it's a symbol of permaculture. It's a symbol of this movement that's happened for the last fifty or so years uh, globally, where humans are like wow, we do have this sort of, I think, God-given bent towards exploration, curiosity, and innovation. But what if we turn that, instead of creating more things that involve the extraction mining of like rare minerals and, and creating metals and concrete, what if we figured out ways to innovate that are a blessing to the planet rather than a burden? What if we mimic the design principles of nature in biomimicry? 
And when I'm hanging out with my permaculture friends, my eco-village friends, I'm seeing them learn to live in a whole new way that is entirely doable. Like we could actually do this. It's not for want of a um, policy shift or a blueprint for change that we're experiencing the difficulties that we have. I think it's a want for a heart level connection, which is why I consider myself a kind of contemplative activist who mm-hmm. wishes to help people reconnect to spirit, self, other, and world. Because when we do that, then we're naturally going to find the policies and the community forms that will enable us to uh, to live more gently uh, with this planet, to take our, our seat at the creaturely table rather than continuing on with this delusion that we are you know, somehow entitled to dominate. Well, we're we're not. Um, for those listening, if you haven't listened to, I did an interview with Elizabeth Johnson. Mm, it was about this time last year, but I think it released in February oh, okay. of of 2018. And we talked about interdependency and um, ecology and Darwin and evolution and our responsibility and how we are all interdependent. Like who's subservient to who? The plants yeah. and the trees or us? Because if we destroy them all, guess who loses? But that doesn't <laughs> we'll mean that I'm bit. subservient to trees. But it, it, it mirrors a lot of what you're saying. It's something I should revisit. And I didn't realize that I should until I'm hearing you talk and I'm sitting here nodding my head and I'm sure you're watching me lean over and not pay attention while I take notes. <laughs> but I'm getting to to mysticism a bit. And so if, the way that I would define mysticism is take whatever your salvation experience is, your your come to Jesus moment is, and and anything like that I would qualify as mysticism, something that I struggle to give words to because it's beyond what I can describe, which oddly enough is the way that I think the Bible was written. It's people's best attempt to talk about something that they have no ability or vocabulary to comprehend or document. Um, but mm-hmm. I do know from what I've read, the way the brain works is every time I revisit that mystical experience or connection with the divine, I'm going to alter it and I'm going to change it slightly. And so how do I talk about mysticism or mystical events related to God uh, in a way that will preserve what actually happens and be remains genuine? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's such a good question. Actually happens. Like my, my internal postmodernist wants to deconstruct the idea of anything actually happening. <laughs> but, then on, but then on the other hand, I feel like, well, that's happening in our political life right now, and we have Trump, so maybe I should that's rethink a, that. Trump is actually happening. Yeah. Trump is actually happening, but you know, they, they would talk about uh, how, what, what was, what was Kellyanne Conway's early term about uh, how they were alternative facts. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my goodness, the fundamentalists are becoming the, the worst caricatures of post-modernity that they always <laughs> warn us emergers about. Uh, alternative facts and fake news. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as a launching point to say a few things that came to mind, and then you can rein it back in if I didn't answer your question okay. about that. Okay. So when I think of what you're describing as these like really powerful transcendent experiences, I definitely would include those within mystical experiences, but not all mystical experiences are that. Kind of like how all poodles are dogs, but not all dogs are poodles. Uh, I think that you're. I think you're describing That's a poodle debatable. of an experience. <laughs> really, <laughs> I think you're describing a poodle of an experience that the sort of trans this transcendent, powerful experience that I would probably label more, and you know, drawing from my um, Pentecostal background, is more like an ecstatic experience, this sort of, oh man, this is like really different than my ordinary. Whereas I think mysticism offers us the opportunity 
to begin experiencing a more sublime or subtle divinity within the ordinary everyday moments. So the art of union with reality is this gradual letting go and easement into what is, out of which can definitely prepare us to have more of those kinds of transcendent experiences uh, in the present tense, these sort of ecstatic experiences. But it's interesting because unlike my Pentecostal background, most contemplatives warn against having too much emphasis on seeking these unusual experiences. And, and frankly, we're, we're, a bit, um, we're a bit tame even these days compared to experiences that saints have reported in centuries past. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about levitation and manifesting the stigmata, the wounds of Christ in their, their you know, hands and all kinds of weird stuff, which again is a maybe overly credulous Pentecostal. I cannot entirely dismiss as possible, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, all these you know contemplatives were like, "That's cool. Return to your practice." Uh, and returning to the practice in the healthiest of the mystics was again not about attaining a union that they that their soul somehow was missing. It was about recognizing what is. And when I begin to recognize what is and recognize that I'm going to have all the God I could ever have, even in this moment, even sitting here talking to you, my time sitting on a bench in meditation or contemplative prayer or centering prayer is simply retuning my heart to be more receptive to what is. It's not provoking God to create this extraordinary uh, reality that was not otherwise there. Mm-hmm. And so maybe circle back around to what I think is part of what you're asking, which is, you know, just like when you make a copy of a copy of a copy, eventually the copy loses its integrity. If I'm going to continue talking about this amazing mystical experience I had when I was, you know, 12 years old, uh, it might eventually lose its potency. My, I guess my, my best response to that would be to continue living in the open hearted manner that had you received that initial experience to begin with, living more off of fresh manna than only recounting the past. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. But yeah. And, and I might've missaid it. So I don't mean that that's the only way to get a mystical experience. Um, I don't, I don't mean that, but that's often what I equate to mystical experience. And I often find that they come when I'm not actually looking for them. Usually they come at an inconvenient time when I'm actually not in the mood for them. (laughs) If that, if that makes sense, like at a, at a time that I, I don't need to deal with this right now. I don't want to deal with this right now. And I know for me, oftentimes uh, it's during contemplative prayer or uh, the one thing that I've been leaning into a lot this year is the examine. Um, And I can only do so many things at one time. Then I talked a little bit about conspiring prayer with Mark Karras, and I haven't gotten to that yet. I'm going to try that a little bit more as I pray. But I find... Well, when we're talking about contemplative practices and contemplative spirituality, I find that there's a huge correspondence between trauma, both collectively and internally. And so Mm -hmm. how do I, while I'm trying to quiet my mind into whatever the contemplative practice is, how do I Mm -hmm. deal with and filter trauma, either collective or personal? Yeah, I'm so glad you named that because, you know, again, part of this paradigm that I'm exploring where I'm putting anthropology and dialogue with scripture and dialogue with with uh, contemplative practices is that the uh, the shift to again to to agriculture and writing and some of these abrupt technological shifts that happened seem to have the effect of trauma in our species that we begin to have this experience where we lost inches off of our stature, years off of our lifespan, men and women turned against each other uh, in ways that were unprecedented. 
And it's really hard to overemphasize the roots of a sort of species-wide trauma that begins to open in, in that time period. And I think it, it echoes through today in, in all the different ways that each of us have experienced these various traumatic uh, breaks in our, our lives. And, you know, I think that Thomas Keating, who uh, recently passed away, one of the pioneers of, of centering prayer, he would sometimes refer to centering prayer as, as the divine therapy. And rather than trying to, you know, stop these thoughts from occurring, stopping these sort of weird, uh, you know, unprecedented emotions and, and images from arising, it was actually built into the unique genius of centering prayer itself that you don't actually try to stop thoughts. You don't actually try to quiet the mind. There are meditation forms that do that, various, you know, transcendental meditation, et cetera, where they're more concentrative practices. But as uh, one of my favorite teachers, Cynthia Bourgeau, says, uh, centering prayer has more of a kenosis underlying it, this more kenotic sense of, you know, like the, uh, the early Christian hymn in Philippians, that, that Christ uh, being equal with God but not seeing equality as something to be grasped instead took the form of a servant, you know, surrendering this. And that is a surrender practice. We can continue to let whatever arise, arise, and then let it go in the moment, trusting that God is, is present with us. Yeah. And, you know, that can be a nice thing to say. I think the other thing with that is whenever we begin to do any kind of deep work, and I would definitely include a consistent practice of centering prayer as being a part of a really deep personal work, it's important to have community around you. And that this is, again, where I think the Trinitarian spirituality really comes home. Like, do you have a, uh, a circle of folks who can be unconditionally present with you that you can process with? Barring that, do you have a, a spiritual director? Do you have, you know, are you a specially awesome faith community? You know, I found part of my community, not within Christianity, but within um, a men's circle with an organization called the Mankind Project. Mm -hmm. About about seven years ago, I did a men's uh, initiation rite, a rite of passage with this amazing organization that helps men move beyond stereotypes of masculinity and discover what masculinity authentically and lovingly and powerfully means for us. And and part of the you know enduring gift of that was being able to sit for many years in a circle of men where we had absolute confidentiality and we had certain agreed upon processes from which to express our true selves and all of our love and our anger and everything and know that that can be okay. Yeah. And, and you know, frankly, even I, I I greatly respect therapists and therapy, but there are ways that we can like peer led teach each other and hold space for each other uh, to deal with the traumas that come up when we're doing important work like contemplative prayer. Besides centering prayer, what has been the most impactful contemplative practice that you do on a continuing basis that, that has really changed the way that you do things? Yes. I'm glad you asked because I feel like I have a response to this that might be different than what other wonderful responses you get from other contemplative folks. Because of this sort of Trinitarian emphasis, you know, uh, Father Richard was very generous in our collaborating on the book in that he allowed me to include some practices in the back of the book that drew from my experience facilitating these relational skills exercises. Um, 
about a decade ago, in addition to finding men's work and finding that to be so amazingly transformative and wishing that Christianity had something comparable, at least in our contemporary experience, of the candor and the skill that this this movement um, had of this men's work, I also discovered this stream of development work um, known variously as uh, authentic relating uh, practices or relational skills practices. And they involve various face-to-face exercises where we are invited to become more vulnerable, let our guard down, truly see another person or persons sitting across from us. It can be as simple as an eye-gazing exercise, which is one of the things that we include in the book, and just really softening our gaze, allowing ourselves to be seen as well as to see the other that's in front of us. And I've got to tell you, when facilitated well, these practices can be just as contemplative as when I'm sitting um, you know, by myself in a solo practice, of really opening up to the marvel and the mystery and the story of this other human being who is right in front of me. And so I've been privileged to help facilitate this for, uh, for churches and groups for the last several years. In fact, if you go to relationalskills.com, you can see a good friend of mine, David, and I, where we've been able to do this at the Wild Goose Festival, at several um, congregations from various denominations in, in various parts of the country. And I really want to bring these practices more together because I think a lot of even advanced Christian contemplatives, uh, frankly, don't know how to fully be with another person at a really intimate level. Yeah. Uh, or, and or have uh, know when to have boundaries and when to say, hey, actually, this doesn't feel good and I'm, I'm going to hold a boundary here. But to have awareness of when I'm holding a boundary and when I'm letting you in. And, you know, similarly, in a lot of these um, personal development worlds where these practices are the whole of what they do, I find that they're really hungry for and curious about an established uh, spiritual and religious tradition like Christianity. I've had some of the best conversations uh, with some of my friends in these these particular realms that I think even my my Southern Baptist evangelism explosion mentors would be proud of me for. Hmm. So... <laughs> I can't picture what that would look like. Like even, like I know if, even staring at my family, like my kids, my wife, for too long um, uh-huh. with intention, um, which is what uh-huh. I'm hearing you say, like I'm uh-huh. looking to see as opposed to looking at, um, yeah. Is, yeah. is wholly uncomfortable uh, for me. Uh-huh. Like it makes my skin crawl. And so what is the feedback uh-huh. or how many people are doing this when you're facilitating this? Like is everybody looking at everyone or I'm assigned... I'm assigned uh-huh. Mike and Jenny's uh-huh. assigned uh-huh. Thomas or what does that yeah. even look like? Yeah. Yeah. So even, even your use of the term staring uh, tells me a lot about how you've experienced this in the past. You know, some, some species uh, really lock eyes as a form of aggression and mm-hmm. intimidation. And, and it definitely, it does have this more staring kind of thing. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, since you and I are our perfect fathers, we've never, you know, stared at our children in, in that kind of way to, to encourage <laughs> Sometime them. Sometimes that's how I talk to them, just to stare. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the gaze uh, is something, something altogether different, the loving glance, the, um, what Father Richard likes to call the very etymology of the term respect means to look again hmm. uh, and to look again in a deeper sort of way. And so if this is being facilitated one is, you know, a pair of people could do it. You know, you could you could whip out the, this part of the divine dance, read it, and do it with your your wife tonight if you wanted after dinner. 
But when we facilitate it in a group, this particular exercise, eye gazing, we'll typically do it. We'll have the room break up into pairs and we'll give folks a certain amount of time. Um, usually start off with one minute and then we might increase it uh, as people switch partners. So we have them, you know, connect with a person silently and we give them certain prompts so it's less awkward. It's not complete silence. Uh, various visualizations or exercises they can do while they're, they're holding this other person's gaze. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with eye contact. Mm -hmm. um, they either see it as threatening or see it as inherently romantic. Um, you know, and when we have people switch partners, we'll, we'll often explore, we'll take shares in between and people will explore things with, with gender dynamics. You know, if, if they're heterosexual, they might be like, oh, it's easy to connect with, easier to connect with some of the same sex than the opposite sex or vice versa. If they're a bit homophobic, it might be really hard for them to, to do this with someone of the same sex. Yeah. Uh, so all kinds of interesting stuff comes up that I feel like we really need to have conversations about as, as the human species. And, you know, I'm sure it can be facilitated in less skilled ways where it might uh, seem more, you know, volatile than it needs to be. But that's, that's one example. We can also introduce um, sentence stems into those exercises. So after some moments of silent connection, we might have uh, people say, what I'm noticing when I'm with you is, and then they share something. And then the other person, you know, receives that, takes that in, and then they might say, hearing that, I notice blank. Mm -hmm. And what they notice may or may not be directly related to what the other person initially named noticing. It's, it's your own experience in that next moment. It's not exactly like a linear conversation. So these kinds of experiences can be deeply transformative. And, you know, if you don't even want to plunk down the cash for a copy of The Divine Dance, I give away a bonus chapter on my blog that has several of the exercises in it and also several exercises unique to the bonus chapter. So if your listeners want to, you can go to mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter and you can see some of these exercises and, and try them out for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've not downloaded that because I assumed it was the same as the last chapter of the book that's over there. Um I didn't. I will. I'll do that today. I'm all about that. Um, right on. <laughs> I've, I've found personally, though, when I do anything like that, and I've never done, um, I'll try to use the right verbiage, uh, eye gazing. Um, uh -huh. Usually it, it changes me in a way that I can't unput that. I can't put that toothpaste back in the into the tube. Like it, it yeah. be it, I don't know, like over the last four to five years, every little thing of my religion or my faith that has changed has changed in a way that um, they're all very small. Um, I wrote a blog post about this not too long ago. Um, the very small, tiny things that shift the entire mountain. Mm. Individually, they look like just one night of practice of this intention to look at Mike's face and talk to him about what I see in him, what I find true in him, what I find holy in him, and mm. et cetera. Mm. But that mm. changes the way that every interaction, therefore. Yeah. It, it, which. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess the caveat is make sure you're ready for that when you get in it. Um, so. <laughs> If what is what is your hope for the church? I, I hate to think fifty years from now because that's I'll be dead. So what is what is the hope for the church even five years from now? So we live in a, in an age of of horrible trauma, a lot of yelling. Um, I don't want to be political, but there's all of that. Uh, yeah. People are dying by the millions in Yemen. Like what does yeah yeah what do you hope for our church to either mobilize, change, and or do or none of that 
mm-hmm. in the next mm-hmm. three to four years that you feel like would be a good thing for people to invest energy into? Yeah, such a great question. You know, growing up and being this really arduous spiritual seeker, exploring the house church movement and the emerging church conversation, you know, there probably would have been a time where I would have had a highly ambitious answer to that question. Um, you know, especially before having children, I had, you know, very specific ideas of how to rethink both theology and praxis and really detailed ways. And and having kids changed that for me a bit, not in the sense of like settling, but realizing that hmm, there were these sort of um, torchbearers who have been pioneering this for decades within certain mainline uh, Protestant denominations. And, and they were also open to rethinking who they were and how they were. So to be more concrete, like since moving to Asheville, North Carolina, where my family and I have lived for about a year and a half now, I would say that there are half a dozen churches that we could be fully a part of without crossing our fingers, without um, you know feeling like we were missing out on something. And the, the traits that I'm appreciating about these groups are that they they really do uh, honor the, you know the priesthood of all participants, the sort of uh, holiness and generativity of all of us. That so there isn't this sort of expertise caste uh, that separates the ministers from everyone else, even though these ministers do indeed have a lot of expertise and, and skill in in being who they are. They encourage a greater level of of congregational participation perhaps not as much as uh, in my house church days, but nonetheless, like you could attend our, our particular faith community circle of mercy for a couple of months and not have a clear idea of who paid ministers are versus who, you know, active congregants are just different people, you know, sharing messages with the children, working with communion, uh, facilitating the prayers of the people, etc. And, you know, robust engagement with uh, with scripture, with the lectionary as a, as a launching point, kind of keeping grounded in the narratives of our tradition. But then, you know, what's been most touching for me in this time of, you know, the sort of post-election uh, craziness is the way in which these faith communities, both the ones that I'm directly a part of and the ones that I'm aware of, are such a witness in our community that we are, you know, standing with folks who are on the verge of being deported. We're writing letters, we're visiting, we're being visible with them, we're engaging with with ICE, we're engaging, you know, folks who do not live in home, do not have homes in our area, uh, people who are, are experiencing various addictions and cycles of poverty, like both individual congregants and as a church are involved in the front lines of so many uh, important initiatives with the most vulnerable of our culture. And, you know, Christianity gets a a bad rap nowadays, and and in many ways rightfully so, but I, I actually don't see the local, you know, yoga studio or meditation groups out there in the community as much as I see progressive Christian communities really practicing what they preach and really embodying uh, the Jesus that they they seek to live live as. And I would basically say I want to see that tribe increase. I want to see folks who are you know living these wholehearted, open-handed lives of uh, of service to the world. And also paying attention to the inter- interior life, paying attention to self-observation and awareness and looking at what uh, you know fellowship with God looks like uh, in these various contexts. But honestly, it could take a lot of different ecclesiological forms, but as long as we're being mindful of the inward journey and the outward journey, the journey together, um, I actually feel hopeful. 
And, you know, part of that hope is also rooted in the, the sobering sociological reality that as our our empire begins to contract, which I think that, you know, personally not to get doom and gloom, but I do think that the age of American hegemony in the world is already fading. I agree. Uh, and then, you know, more globally looking at catastrophic climate change, ocean acidification, desertification, deforestation, uh, massive species extinction. We're in the midst of the sixth great species extinction of our planet. Uh, we're losing so much biodiversity. It, it's heartbreaking. Um, because of all of that, I actually think we are going to become as a culture uh, more religious and not less as we're seeking to like find and ground in the meaning of our own contraction. And so if I was, you know, talking to ministers today, and I probably am, you're probably listening, I would say be less concerned with the sort of preoccupied questions that folks have been asking for the last few decades of how do we keep church relevant? How do we keep people in the seats? These sorts of really technical questions and ask questions of how do you or people in your congregation practice hospice care? How do you be with someone who is dying? Because while I'm not going to speculate as to how many literal deaths are going to occur in the coming decades, I do think a certain element of our culture is dying. I do think a certain self-perception of Americans as being this exceptional people is going to die. And when that happens, if you are a loving pastoral place, you are going to attract people to your community. And so it's a question of how can we be agents of compost, agents of yeast, agents of transformation, when it looks like decay is all around us. I do think that is what we are being called into. I agree with that. And it reminds me of one of the first interviews I did was with um, a gentleman from Houston, um, Sean Palmer. And I asked him a similar question in a a different way. Um, Uh And he said, if we would just, to to paraphrase it down, just draw a circle around the five-mile radius of your church and we own these people. Whatever they need, that's what we do. If they need help, they do it. If they, whatever they need, whether or not yeah. they come and whether or not they tithe, we love these yeah. people. And if every church would do that, there's yep. the entire population basically taken care of. Yeah. But no, I, yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I full-heartedly think that the age of America being whatever America wants to be and whatever America thinks that it is, 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 is already passed and just not realized. Yeah. And it will be yeah. traumatic when it is realized. But that is an entirely another hour-long <laughs> podcast episode. Part two. Yeah. Where would you direct people to engage with your content, Mike? So you've got your website, mikemorell.org, org, yes. correct? Yeah. Um, but where else would you have people engage and uh, kind of dig into contemplative practice, dig into a little bit of what you do? Because you do like 27 <laughs> different things between the Wild Goose Festival and Speakeasy and, and everything else. So where would yeah. you send people? Yeah, I mean, I would send people to mikemorell.org. It is my my hub on the web. And specifically, if you sign up for my email newsletter, which happens automatically if you're getting the bonus chapter, uh, you'll be able to stay in touch with all, all the things that, that I'm working on. We've got some great stuff coming up this year with Wisdom Camp at the Wild Goose Festival in summer of 2019 mm-hmm. with this launch of Rewilder, which I, I don't have the URL to give you yet because we're still building that site as of this interview, maybe once it airs, um, there'll be a, a website to give you for the show notes. But um, yeah, micromorale.org is is the hub. And then, you know, if you're interested in the relational exercises we were talking about, these sort of 
you know, group contemplative practices, I would recommend going to uh, relationalskills.com. And uh, actually, you know, one of the 27 things for something completely different, uh, this will be up by the time folks are listening. Uh, my my fr- a friend of mine and I are actually launching an Enneagram jewelry company. <laughs> where we're, for folks who are into the Enneagram and who are struck by the symmetry and the symbolism of the Enneagram, we're creating high quality uh, rings and pendants. So, so if that's you. What does that look like for an eight? Or actually, I, I feel like predominantly when I'm not at work, I'm a five. So what does that look like if I was to buy a pendant for a five? Are they all the same? They're all the same. Right right now, we simply have, um, you know, we have a few different designs, but they're all variations of the, the nine-pointed Enneagram mm-hmm. symbol. We're not differentiating um, based on the number, which... Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of an enneagram geek, and you know what's what's interesting um, about all of that is that the enneagram of personality is but one use of the enneagram. It's sort of an esoteric handy tool, and there are many other uses of the enneagram. And in, in its origination point, it was actually a symbol that was more to be danced with your body than to be analyzed as to what your type was. But again, that hmm. would be a whole other. <laughs> conversation. I'm, I'm, willing but, uh, to, I'm willing to have that too. Mike, thank you so much for, um, for coming on to the show. Genuinely enjoy the conversation. I look forward to doing it again at some point in the future of our busy lives. Likewise, Seth. Let's do it. Glad to have been here. I see souls in cages Silenced by the voice of fear there melodies are in prison Giving in to the lie That this is all there is to lie But freedom is near If we can't learn to embrace mysticism, our faith is quickly going to become quote unquote, the law. It's just going to be dogma. It's just going to be memorization. And it's just going to be penal, like a legal contract. And I don't want that. And I don't think you want that. And I, I, I believe for the future of our faith and our church, we will have to learn to embrace aspects of our faith that are emotional and carnal at a level that are hard to talk about. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. Talk with you soon. Roll the music credits. I see inhibitions break under the weight of faith. I see walls crumble as fear runs away. The sound of his name I see the spirit releasing Every daughter, every son of God So the beats that you heard today that you bobbed your head to are from artist Ecclesia. They are based out of Florida. I am falling in love with that band. There is not enough music out there from them and there needs to be more. And I highly encourage you uh, to click the link on the playlist follow their stuff hit that subscribe button every time a new jam comes out from them i'm instantly in love love what they're doing as always you will find 
those beats, those tracks, that music on Spotify more easily at the podcast playlist. Can I say this at church? And there's two feeds there, one for the show and one for the playlist. It is quickly becoming one of my favorite playlists. So hope you listen to it. Chains were released. 